Section five of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avahi in May two thousand nineteen. Chapter two The Valley and the Tomb. The Valley of the Tombs of the Kings, the very name is full of romance, and of all Egypt's wonders there is none, I suppose, that makes a more instant appeal to the imagination. Here, in this lonely valley head, remote from every sound of life, with the horn, the highest peak in the Theban hills, standing sentinel like a natural pyramid above them, lay thirty or more kings, among them the greatest Egypt ever knew. Thirty were buried here. Now probably but two remain, Amunhotep the second, whose mummy may be seen by the curious lying in his sarcophagus, and Tutankhamun, who still remains intact beneath his golden shrine. There, when the claims of science have been satisfied, we hope to leave him lying. I do not propose to attempt a word-picture of the valley itself. That has been done too often in the past few months. I would like, however, to devote a certain amount of time to its history, for that is essential to a proper understanding of our present tomb. Tucked away in a corner at the extreme end of the valley, half concealed by a projecting bastion of rock, lies the entrance to a very unostentatious tomb. It is easily overlooked and rarely visited, but it has a very special interest as being the first ever constructed in the valley. More than that, it is notable as an experiment in a new theory of tomb design. To the Egyptian it was a matter of vital importance that his body should rest inviolate in the place constructed for it, and this the earlier kings had sought to ensure by erecting over it a very mountain of stone. It was also essential to a mummy's well-being that it should be fully equipped against every need, and, in the case of a luxurious and display-loving oriental monarch, this would naturally involve a lavish use of gold and other treasure. The result was obvious enough. The very magnificence of the monument was its undoing, and within a few generations at most the mummy would be disturbed and its treasure stolen. Various expedients were tried. The entrance passage, naturally the weak spot in a pyramid, was plugged with granite monoliths weighing many tons. False passages were constructed, secret doors were contrived, everything that ingenuity could suggest or wealth could purchase was employed. Vain labour all of it, for by patience and perseverance the tomb-robber in every case surmounted the difficulties that were set to baffle him. Moreover, the success of these expedients, and therefore the safety of the monument itself, was largely dependent on the goodwill of the mason who carried out the work, and the architect who designed it. Careless workmanship would leave a danger point in the best planned defences, and, in private tombs at any rate, we know that an ingress for plunderers was sometimes contrived by the officials who planned the work. Efforts to secure the guarding of the royal monument were equally unavailing. A king might leave enormous endowments, as a matter of fact each king did, for the upkeep of large companies of pyramid officials and guardians, but after a time these very officials were ready enough to connive at the plundering of the monument they were paid to guard, 
while the endowments were sure at the end of the dynasty at latest to be diverted by some subsequent king to other purposes at the beginning of the eighteenth dynasty there was hardly a king's tomb in the whole of egypt that had not been rifled a somewhat grisly thought to the monarch who was choosing the site for his own last resting-place tothmes i evidently found it so and devoted a good deal of thought to the problem and as a result we get the lonely little tomb at the head of the valley secrecy was to be the solution to the problem a preliminary step in this direction had been taken by his predecessor amunhotep i who made his tomb some distance away from his funerary temple on the summit of the drach abul nega foothills hidden beneath a stone but this was carrying it a good deal further it was a drastic break with tradition and we may be sure that he hesitated long before he made the decision in the first place his pride would suffer for love of ostentation was ingrained in every egyptian monarch and in his tomb more than anywhere else he was accustomed to display it then too the new arrangement would seem likely to cause a certain amount of inconvenience to his mummy the early funerary monuments had always in immediate proximity to the actual place of burial a temple in which the due ceremonies were performed at the various yearly festivals and daily offerings were made now there was to be no monument over the tomb itself and the funerary temple in which the offerings were made was to be situated a mile or so away on the other side of the hill it was certainly not a convenient arrangement but it was necessary if the secrecy of the tomb was to be kept and secrecy king tothmes had decided on as the one chance of escaping the fate of his predecessors the construction of this hidden tomb was entrusted by tothmes to ineni his chief architect and in the biography which was inscribed on the wall of his funerary chapel ineni has put on record the secrecy with which the work was carried out i superintended the excavation of the cliff tomb of his majesty he tells us alone no one seeing no one hearing unfortunately he omits to tell us anything about the workmen he employed it is sufficiently obvious that a hundred or more laborers with a knowledge of the king's dearest secret would never be allowed at large and we can be quite sure that in any found some effectual means of stopping their mouths conceivably the work was carried out by prisoners of war who were slaughtered at its completion how long the secret of this particular tomb held we do not know probably not long for what secret was ever kept in egypt at the time of its discovery in eighteen ninety nine little remained in it but the massive stone sarcophagus and the king himself was moved as we know first of all to the tomb of his daughter hatshepsut and subsequently with the other royal mummies to der el bahari in any case whether the hiding of the tomb was temporarily successful or not a new fashion had been set and the remaining kings of this dynasty together with those of the nineteenth and twentieth were all buried in the valley the idea of secrecy did not long prevail from the nature of things it could not and the later kings seem to have accepted the fact and gone back to the old plan of making their tombs conspicuous 
now that it had become the established custom to place all the royal tombs within a very restricted area they may have thought that tomb robbery was securely provided against seeing that it was very much to the reigning king's interest to see that the royal burial site was protected if they did they mightily deceived themselves we know from internal evidence that tutankhamun's tomb was entered by robbers within ten or at most fifteen years of his death we also know from graffiti in the tomb of Thothmes the fourth that that monarch too had suffered at the hands of plunderers within a very few years of his burial for we find king horemheb in the eighth year of his reign issuing instructions to a certain high official named maya to renew the burial of king Thothmes the fourth justified in the precious habitation in western thebes they must have been bold spirits who made the venture they were evidently in a great hurry and we have reason to believe that they were caught in the act if so we may be sure they died deaths that were lingering and ingenious strange sights the valley must have seen and desperate the ventures that took place in it one can imagine the plotting for days beforehand the secret rendezvous on the cliff by night the bribing or drugging of the cemetery guards and then the desperate burrowing in the dark the scramble through a small hole into the burial chamber the hectic search by a glimmering light for treasure that was portable and the return home at dawn laden with booty we can imagine these things and at the same time we can realize how inevitable it all was by providing his mummy with the elaborate and costly outfit which he thought essential to its dignity the king was himself compassing its destruction the temptation was too great wealth beyond the dreams of avarice lay there at the disposal of whoever should find the means to reach it and sooner or later the tomb robber was bound to win through for a few generations under the powerful kings of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries the valley tombs must have been reasonably secure plundering on a big scale would be impossible without the connivance of the officials concerned in the twentieth dynasty it was quite another story there were weaklings on the throne a fact of which the official classes as ever were quick to take advantage cemetery guardians became lax and venial and a regular orgy of grave robbing seems to have set in this is a fact of which we have actual first-hand evidence for there have come down to us dating from the reign of rameses the ninth a series of papyri dealing with this very subject with reports of investigations into charges of tomb robbery and accounts of the trial of the criminals concerned they are extraordinarily interesting documents we get from them in addition to very valuable information about the tombs something which egyptian documents as a rule singularly lack a story with a real human element in it and we are enabled to see right into the minds of a group of officials who lived in thebes three thousand years ago the leading characters in the story are three kamwees the vizier or governor of the district Pezer, the mayor of that part of the city which lay on the east bank, and Pewero, the mayor of the western side, ex officio guardian of the necropolis. The two latter were evidently, 
one might say, naturally, on bad terms, each was jealous of the other. Consequently, Pesa was not ill-pleased to receive one day reports of tomb-plundering on an extensive scale that was going on on the western bank. Here was a chance to get his rival into trouble, so he hastened to report the matter to the vizier, giving, somewhat foolishly, exact figures as to the tombs which had been entered, ten royal tombs, four tombs of the priestesses of Amun, and a long list of private tombs. On the following day, Kamwis sent a party of officials across the river to confer with Pewero and to investigate the charges. The results of their investigations were as follows. Of the ten royal tombs, one was found to have been actually broken into, and attempts had been made on two of the others. Of the priestesses' tombs, two were pillaged and two were intact. The private tombs had all been plundered. These facts were hailed by Pewero as a complete vindication of his administration, an opinion which the vizier apparently endorsed. The plundering of the private tombs was cynically admitted, but what of that? To people of our class what do the tombs of private individuals matter? Of the four priestesses' tombs two were plundered and two were not. Balance the one against the other, and what cause has any one to grumble? Of the ten royal tombs mentioned by Pezer, only one had actually been entered, only one out of ten, so clearly his whole story was a tissue of lies. Thus, Pewero, on the principle, apparently, that if you are accused of ten murders and are only found guilty of one, you leave the court without a stain on your character. As a celebration of his triumph, Pewero collected next day the inspectors, the necropolis administrators, the workmen, the police, and all the laborers of the necropolis, and sent them as a body to the east side, with instructions to make a triumphant parade throughout the town generally, but particularly in the neighborhood of Pezer's house. You may be sure they carried out this latter part of their instructions quite faithfully. Pezer bore it as long as he could, but at last his feelings got too much for him, and in an altercation with one of the western officials he announced his attention, in front of witnesses, of reporting the whole matter to the king himself. This was a fatal error, of which his rival was quick to take advantage. In a letter to the vizier he accused the unfortunate Pezer, first of questioning the good faith of a commission appointed by his direct superior, and secondly of going over the head of that superior and stating his case directly to the king, a proceeding at which the virtuous Pewero threw up his hands in horror, as contrary to all custom and subversive of all discipline. This was the end of Pezer. The offended vizier summoned a court, a court in which the unhappy man, as a judge, was bound himself to sit, and in it he was tried for perjury and found guilty. That, in brief, is the story. It is told at full length in Volume 4, paragraph 499 and follows of Breasted's Ancient Records of Egypt. It is tolerably clear from it that both the mayor and the vizier were themselves implicated in the robberies in question. The investigation they made was evidently a blind, 
for within a year or two of these proceedings we find other cases of tomb robbing cropping up in the court records and at least one of the tombs in question occurs in Perzier's original list the leading spirits in this company of cemetery thieves seem to have been a gang of eight men five of whose names have come down to us the stone-cutter hapi the artisan iramen the peasant amunemhep the water-carrier Kemwees, and the negro-slave Ehenefer. They were eventually apprehended on the charge of having desecrated the royal tomb referred to in the investigation, and we have a full account of their trial. It began, according to custom, by beating the prisoners with a double rod, smiting their feet and their hands, to assist their memories. Under this stimulus they made full confession. The opening sentences in the confession are mutilated in the text, but they evidently describe how the thieves tunneled through the rock to the burial chamber and found the king and queen in their sarcophagi. We penetrated them all, we found her resting likewise. The text goes on. Quote, we opened their coffins and their coverings in which they were. We found the august mummy of this king. There was a numerous list of amulets and ornaments of gold at his throat. Its head had a mask of gold upon it. The august mummy of this king was overlaid with gold throughout. Its coverings were wrought with gold and silver, within and without, inlaid with every costly stone. We stripped off the gold which we found on the august mummy of this god, and its amulets and ornaments which were at its throat, and the covering wherein it rested. We found the king's wife likewise. We stripped off all that we found on her likewise. We set fire to their coverings. We stole their furniture, which we found with them, being vases of gold, silver, and bronze. We divided and made the gold which we found on these two gods, on their mummies, and the amulets, ornaments, and coverings, into eight parts. On this confession they were found guilty and removed to the house of detention, until such time as the king himself might determine their punishment. In spite of this trial, and a number of others of similar character, matters in the valley went rapidly from bad to worse. The tombs of Amunhetep III, Seti I, and Ramesses II are mentioned in the court records as having been broken into, and in the following dynasty all attempts at guarding the tombs seem to have been abandoned, and we find the royal mummies being moved about from sepulchre to sepulchre in a desperate effort to preserve them. Ramesses III, for instance, was disturbed and reburied three times at least in this dynasty, and other kings known to have been transferred include Ames, Amunhetep I, Tothmes II, and even Ramesses the Great himself. In this last case, the docket states, Year 17, third month of the second season, day 6, day of bringing Osiris, King Uzamare Setepnere, Ramesses II, to bury him again in the tomb of Osiris, King Menmare Seti I, by the high priest of Amun, Painesem. A reign or two later, we find Seti I and Ramesses II being moved from this tomb and reburied in the tomb of Queen Inhapi, 
and in the same reign we get a reference to the tomb we have been using as our laboratory this year they of bringing king men pechti re rameses i out from the tomb of king menma re seti ii in order to bring him into the tomb of inhapi which is in the great place wherein king amunhetep rests no fewer than thirteen of the royal mummies found their way at one time or another to the tomb of Amunhetep II, and here they were allowed to remain. The other kings were eventually collected from their various hiding places, taken out of the valley altogether, and placed in a well-hidden tomb cut in the Deir el-Bahari cliff. This was the final move, for by some accident the exact locality of the tomb was lost, and the mummies remained in peace for nearly three thousand years. Throughout all these troublous times in the twentieth and twenty-first dynasties, there is no mention of Tutankhamun and his tomb. He had not escaped altogether, his tomb, as we have already noted, having been entered within a very few years of his death, but he was lucky enough to escape the ruthless plundering of the later period. For some reason his tomb had been overlooked. It was situated in a very low-lying part of the valley, and a heavy rainstorm might well have washed away all trace of its entrance. Or again, it may owe its safety to the fact that a number of huts, for the use of workmen who were employed in excavating the tomb of a later king, were built immediately above it. With the passing of the mummies, the history of the valley, as known to us from ancient Egyptian sources, comes to an end. Five hundred years had passed since Thothmes I had constructed his modest little tomb there, and, surely, in the whole world's history, there is no small plot of ground that had five hundred years of more romantic story to record. From now on we are to imagine a deserted valley, spirit-haunted, doubtless, to the Egyptian, its cavernous galleries plundered and empty, the entrances of many of them open, to become the home of fox, desert owl, or colonies of bats. Yet, plundered, deserted, and desolate, as were its tombs, the romance of it was not yet wholly gone. It still remained the sacred valley of the kings, and crowds of the sentimental and the curious must still have gone to visit it. Some of its tombs, indeed, were actually reused in the time of Orzorkon I, about 900 BC, for the burial of priestesses. References to its rock-hewn passages are numerous in classical authors, and that many of them were still accessible to visitors in their day is evident from the reprehensible manner in which, like John Smith, 1878, they carved their names upon the walls. A certain Philetyros, son of Ammonius, who inscribed his name in several places on the walls of the tomb in which we had our lunch, intrigued me not a little during the winter, though perhaps it would have been better not to mention the fact, lest I seem to countenance the beastly habits of the John Smiths. One final picture, before the mist of the Middle Ages settles down upon the valley and hides it from our view. There is something about the atmosphere of Egypt, most people experience it, I think, that attunes one's mind to solitude, 
and that is probably one of the reasons why after the conversion of the country to christianity so many of its inhabitants turned with enthusiasm to the hermit's life the country itself with its equable climate its narrow strip of cultivable land and its desert hills on either side honeycombed with natural and artificial caverns was well adapted to such a purpose shelter and seclusion were readily obtainable and that within easy reach of the outer world and the ordinary means of subsistence in the early centuries of the christian era there must have been thousands who forsook the world and adopted the contemplative life and in the rock-cut sepulchres upon the desert hills we find their traces everywhere such an ideal spot as the valley of the kings could hardly pass unnoticed and in the second to fourth centuries a d we find a colony of anchorites in full possession the open tombs in use as cells and one transformed into a church this then is our final glimpse of the valley in ancient times and a strange incongruous picture it presents magnificence and royal pride have been replaced by humble poverty the precious habitation of the king has narrowed to a hermit's cell end of section five